Welcome to the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. Very special guest is Howard Eskin. Uh, Howard Eskin is, I consider, a broadcast legend, having started his career decades ago in Philadelphia, uh, I guess first spinning records at the old WFIL radio, which I remember as a little boy growing, going into school and hearing uh, Donald D. Rose, Jim O'Brien, uh, uh, George Michael and all these people who were just broadcast legends in the day playing songs. And, and, and so you were there probably at the very beginning of your career involved at that legendary station. Yeah. I was spinning 45s for these guys, you know, 45s do now there's still people that remember what 45s were. Uh, now everything's digital. Uh, but now I, it just, that was an important part of my career because I met, uh, some really, really important people in my life, which helped me in my career, and that would be Jim O'Brien, who was the best television personality in Philadelphia. Without Jim O'Brien, Channel 6 was never what they became. And uh, same thing with George Michael. Uh, George Michael was important, then he went on TV, and uh, those guys kind of helped me and pushed me, and I wanted to get into sports, and I did get into sports, and uh, went on the air when I was an engineer at WFIL Radio and then finally got a reporter's job doing sports at 1210 Radio in Philadelphia, which was WCAU at the time, now WPHT. And one thing led to another. And then I was the first one in this town, in Philadelphia, that did FM Sports Talk. Uh, I was actually, yeah, I was the first one because WWDB was an FM station and I went there and did a talk show in 1979. Boy, does that date me a little bit? <laughs> uh, you were doing, and I remember it dates me as well because I remember listening to your show. Uh, and and you were, I mean, I was talking about pioneers. That was really early. And, and you built a reputation for yourself. And was it off of that program that you got the job at, uh, oh, you got a job at Channel 3 doing sports for Channel Three, 3, right? And that was probably pretty quick after the DB job. Okay, 79 is when I started at DB in 1982. Channel 3 called me up and said, hey, listen, we want you to do sports uh, on our station. I said, well, I've never done, I've never worked TV in my life. Now, a year before, Jim O'Brien had told me, you should be in television. And I said, Jim, nah, I don't think I'm really ready for TV. I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm confident enough you should be in TV. Uh, so uh, they called me and I hemmed and hawed for a week. Jim O'Brien told me, if you didn't take this opportunity, I'm going to kick your ass because you will never, ever get this opportunity again. Never, never having worked television. Back then there was a general manager there and he was the one that, uh, that really wanted to take the leap. His name was Pat Palillo. Uh, legendary general manager in Philadelphia because he did editorials on Channel 3. Right. People may remember. I remember that. Yep. Yes. And he uh, he wanted me to be who I was. He wanted somebody on TV that said something. Uh, he, uh, or a sports guy that said something. He wanted me to have an opinion. He wanted me to reach out, which people are afraid to do that on television sports. 
I was never afraid. And he was really, really, really important uh, in helping uh, in that regard. So anyway, so, okay. So now they say, all right, we want you to do it. For a week, I said no. Finally, I said, all right, what do you want me to do? So they took me up to New York to a recording studio so nobody would know about it. And I did an audition. I still have the videotape. Have never looked since. Never looked at it because I was horrible. And two other guys who already worked television, one of them was a legend in Chicago, Mark Greco auditioned there and a guy named Tim Mazzetti who was a field goal kicker for Penn and he was working TV in Atlanta so uh, uh, Mark Greco said and we've stayed friends after that he said you're going to get the job because they just want a guy from Philadelphia I said I was terrible I was terrible and I never looked away from the monitor I was scared it was the first time I'd ever been on a television camera so I went to the news director and I said you know I'd like to do it again And because I know what I need to do. And I was really, really, really nervous. He says, no, kid, you are great. Don't worry about it. So they offered me the job to do the, I guess, a couple of weeks later, offered me the job to be the main guy on Channel 3. Imagine that. Never worked television in my life. But I'll give you one better, Brian. This is the topper to the whole thing. All right. The topper is not what I'm about to tell you. They sent me to a coach. They worked with me for a few months before I started. And the first night that I'm supposed to go in the air, I'll never forget the date and never forget the night. September 20th, 1982. Now we got magazine people there. They want to write stories about my first night in television. A guy who never worked TV. Uh, we had a couple of newspapers there in the studio. It's only the six o'clock news. So my first night, this is amazing. I still see the clock in my head up on the wall. 5.09, less than an hour before my first time on television. I only practiced once. I wanted to practice a few times on the set. They gave me one time on the Saturday before. So now at 5.09, the NFL players call a strike. Oh my God, are you kidding me? So now I become the lead story of the news on my first night in television. Can you imagine that? I mean, but it took away the fear because I had to work. I had to check things. I had to get on the phone. I had to do things. I was the lead story on the news on my first night in television. And it was just like that. I just became myself again. I just hey, talked to years people. Fire. Yeah, yeah, you had that experience. That is a really cool story. I think I first came across you. Obviously, I'd listened to you on the radio. I did a, at when I was in med school, I did, they called me the intern intern. And I went and got a chance to work at Channel 3 for about two months in my free time. And Will Wright was the assistant news director who kind of took me under his wing and I had to do things. And so the minute I saw Howard Eskin, I said, well, can I do anything with Howard? And they didn't let me do anything with you for a few weeks. And then finally, I got to go out with you. We went down to Vet Stadium. I remember driving with you in the car. It was like yesterday. But what I remember, and this is really important, you knew I had an interest, but you took the time. Like a lot of people, there were some who did and some who didn't. You could tell when you're the intern, you're thrust onto people and they're kind of annoyed right. or they just like, I'm with them. But like you like talk to me. You asked me why I want to do it. You told me what, what you had seen as pitfalls or whatever. And I always remember that. And, and I, in my career, same thing. You, it's what you give back 
that people remember because they remember when you're on the air, you don't realize the, the power in a sense you have for somebody who's trying to get into the business. You know what? I have, uh, I have uh, more than a few interns that got into the business. One is now the sports director at Channel 29. I hired him when I first went to Channel 29 in 86. That's ahead of, I'm getting ahead of myself here. He was an intern for me at Channel 3. And I saw how hard he worked. I saw his, uh, his responsibility and his effort. And when I got the job and they just started it, they were starting at 10 o'clock news. I hired him. Chris McKendry, who people who are tennis fans, see her do uh, the, the, the studio shows the majors now. She was an anchor on ESPN, but she worked television. She stayed in touch after a year. She was an intern for me. Kevin Nagandi at ESPN was an intern for me. So I had different people, but Jim O'Brien always tell always told me, and I, I have taken so much from him. He, I mean, I, I think about him so often. May he rest in peace. Uh, he told me, and he helped me. I always help people that want to help themselves. And mm -hmm. it, it, when you see that, you do that. I'm going to give you another addendum to the first day in television. On radio, I criticized Dick Vermeil for working players too hard. It was then the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. I criticized Dick, and he told his players to not listen to me because I, you know, I was talking out my rear end. Herm Edwards comes out of a meeting one time who was a cornerback for the Eagles. Now he's a coach at uh, Arizona State, a foot, head football. He was a coach in the NFL and played for the Eagles. He said, what did you do to coach? I said, what are you talking about? He told us not to listen to you and not to pay attention to you. So that being the case, my first day in television at the Maxwell Club, which used to be a, a luncheon for, for that football club, and I was on the dais because it was my first day, so Channel 3 put me on the head table. Dick Vermeil was up there. Dick Vermeil got up there and buried me in front of everybody, buried me. We talk about it now and we laugh because now we've become, he under, now he understands my job. We've become good friends. I've been to his house, been out to dinner. He invited me to his Hall of Fame uh, induction uh, up in Canton in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But, you know, the things that you think about and the people you come across and the things that you do, and Jim O'Brien helped me, the coach who I worked with, and I, they sent me to New York, Channel 3, two or three days a week. Her key phrases, real and natural. And I tell people that want to start doing television, it was easier for me because in radio, that's who I was. I just, I didn't say things I didn't believe. I didn't try to be somebody that I wasn't. I tried to be myself and real and natural. And the one thing about television, you're not talking to hundreds of thousands of people or whatever it is. You just think about one person that you're talking to. And I always thought about the anchor who was next to me. It was Diane Allen, uh, who worked at Channel 3. And whenever it was, and then Jim O'Brien gave me a tip. And this is really important. He said, don't ever let the anchor set up the toss. When you're coming out of a break, all right, here's Howard asking with the sports or whatever. And uh, a lot of people... And there was one guy that worked in Philadelphia television, a sports guy, that wrote his toss for the anchor. Because people are just, they're intimidated about answering a question they don't know what's coming. So he said, people know it's set up. So a couple of the anchors said, hey, what do you want me to ask, ask you? I said, wait a minute. I'm not telling you. Don't tell me what you're going to ask. 
this is my first story. And whatever you want to ask, I don't care if it's that story or something else. You ask it, but don't tell me because I wanted to be myself. And I mm -hmm. had confidence that I could ask any question. Whatever you ask me, I could answer it and feel comfortable doing it. So there's a, there's things that I learned and just be yourself. It just don't be, there's too many people, you know, I'm not going to dime anybody out. There's too many people just try to be, you know, they try to be something they're not. And that's not, you know, you read a prompter, but I never read the prompter. I wrote everything that I did on television because I wrote the way I wanted to talk to I don't use what I call newspaper words. I don't use words that you don't use in speaking to people every day. I just try to be myself. I just try to be. And, you know, obviously that's helped in radio. Uh, that's helped in TV. And uh, me saying what I think has gotten a lot of players angry at me. But it is what it is. And uh, I can't say that it didn't work because fortunately I'm still working. And I believe that I've been successful in doing what I've done. Well, well, you know, you have. And I remember you say you're in Channel 3 till about, I guess, 86. Channel 29 starts at 10 years. And I remember I talked to Roger LeMay, who started the news years after that when I was working there. And I said, what made you hire Howard? And he kind of said, well, we needed a star or someone to bring attention to the show. Like he said, we knew that he was going to bring a draw. And that was true because for sports fans, it was like, oh. Howard's going to have, and you had expanded time too, I think. You had a little more time to talk about sports. Yep. I mean, back now you get two minutes, two minutes and 15 seconds. It's a joke. And that's why, and I love the general manager at Channel 29, which is, I told him uh, when my contract was up for renewal, we had lunch and I became friends with him. He was at Channel 10 before that. He says, you know, we talked for a while and I said, I just want to tell you, you know, I want my 18-hour days to be 12-hour days. And I didn't tell them that I thought the way they were reducing what sports was on television, because their premise is by focus groups, which is, I think, nonsense. Uh, focus. Oh, you get all those highlights on ESPN, but you don't get the local flavor of opinion. And if people doing sports don't give real opinions, then what's the sense? So it's kind of backed itself off. So I told him, I said, Hey, listen, I'm done. He said, I came here to offer you a contract. Don't mention one word to me. I don't want to hear anything about that. You know, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, you know, I'm done. It's just, it's okay. Uh, so, uh, I was doing radio, you know, I was doing radio because it was at that time it was just a 10 o'clock news. And then I was still doing radio. Even when I went back the second time, this was in 2011, I went back because he wanted me to come back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just said, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. So I was doing a pregame show for the Eagles games on Sunday, which, you know, we did them every week and they took, they said, Hey, would you do that? So I thought about it for a few days and I did it and every once in a while they'll pop me on there and that's fine. I I'm good with that. I'm, uh, I'm good with the radio. I'm good with the things that I'm doing. Hey, there was one time, Brian, there was one time in my career when I was at channel 29 uh, and that was the first run in the early 90s when I worked two radio stations. I worked WMMR, which was the same company as WIP. I did two hits a week in the morning, uh, two, uh, two different times, two different days. I did a talk show 
because there was a guy named Mike Craven that wanted to turn WIP into a sports talk station. And that happened in 86. So I did a talk show on WIP. I did the first one on WIPAN and I did the first one on WIPFM, which I really take as a, it's an honor. I did the first sports talk, IPAM and WIPFM. But with all that said, I did those two stations. I wrote three times a week for the Daily News. <laughs> I, I don't know how I did all this. And I did television. I, I, I don't know how. You know, I think back, I said, how did you do all that? Uh, you know, but I just did it. I never thought about how much I was doing because I enjoyed it so much. There's so many different facets of things that, and two publishers have asked me to write a book. And there's so many stories and there's so many things that I've done. And I, and I, I can't say that I would change anything that I've done. And I've enjoyed it all. I mean, sometimes it's a lot of work. I mean, I went, when the Phillies were in the playoffs one time, which is a distant, distant thought, when the Phillies were in the playoffs in the 80s, I flew back from LA and I went right to work. I stayed up for 24 hours. I didn't go to sleep. I just kept on working. I just didn't flu, can't sleep on. I, that's what I do. I, but I enjoy it. If I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. But uh, I met a lot of people. Uh, I, you know, I, I, there's I, things that pop into my head. Um, and you never know. Here's the thing that you don't You don't know who's listening when you're on the air. I'm at an Eagles game before a game. Uh, this is, I don't know how many years ago. I don't know, within the last 10 years. And Bradley Cooper's there, who's an Eagles fan. And he comes up to me before the game. He says, uh, Howard, puts his hand out, Bradley Cooper. I says, come on, man. I said, I know who you are. How do you know who I am? And he says, come on. I've been listening to you and watching you while I was growing up in Philadelphia. Will Smith did the same thing. I, I, it's just, you don't know who's out there. So... I think it's it's I'm proud and it's an honor that these guys listened to me and watched me and then they knew who I was. I mean, they knew who I was. It was it was really, really kind of cool, actually. And Bradley. Well, I, yeah, I remember working you at 29 and how your sports knowledge. Uh, you had a uh, Tom Shredencheck producer and like we would do trivia and like you just knew the answers. But I remember the first night I was on the air. I was coming down. You were coming down to the sports. I had just come off. And you go, how are you? I go, I'm still nervous. And, he, and you just kind of went, easy, isn't it? <laughs> I just started laughing because that first day, it was it was bizarre. I just remember being like just the heart rate was up. Everything was – it was different. And then, I'm, I mean, you had long passed at that point. And then you get to a point where you just kind of – you are just talking to somebody. You, all, In fact, I would forget sometimes I was on the air in the sense that it was it was just part of the normal day. And that's when I think you become more natural when you when you realize it's not you're just talking to people. But you always you did add the spice to it, though, because it, it, you, you had to because it was at the end of the newscast. You had you had to keep people around, too. That was the other thing. Yeah, I, I, I always believed when I was at WWDB, I was nice to people. And I say that with all all due respect and whatever. Uh, and the program director, after a few months, says, you know, if you don't agree with somebody, you don't always have to be nice to them. You can tell them what you really think. And that was after three months of doing talk radio. 
and I got more comfortable doing it. And I just expressed myself. You know, if the guy's an idiot, calls me up on the air, I'll tell him he's an idiot. You know, and they, some people take it as a badge of honor. If I call him an idiot, a moron, or a dope on the radio, they'll come up to me and says, you know, you called me a dope. I says, you probably deserved it. Well, you called me an idiot, too. I says, you probably deserved that, too. Uh, it's so... I just, it's kind of it's funny. And I'm just, I just try to be myself. You know, if I'm talking to somebody uh, and somebody comes up to me, you know, and they'll say something and they'll say, and they're so far off base. I says, you know, that's ridiculous. Uh, are you just a dope? You know, and, and you know, the guy will laugh. Uh, I've never met before, but I see a lot of people at the games and they're not afraid to come up to me. I'm not intimidated. I'm not intimidating, which is amazing. When you see news anchors, a lot of people are afraid to go up to news anchors. Right, just, you're right. But me, they could just stay alone. And I'm I'm pretty tough on people at times, not all the time. You know, it's, it's a small percentage of the time on the air. But they were never, ever intimidated uh, by me. It, it's just I think about so many things. And there's times I'm going to tell you right now, after I've done it for years, I'm, I'm trying to do something a little bit different on the air. There's times I'm nervous before I go in the air. I'm going to try this and we'll see if it works. The San Diego chicken, which was a great mascot back in the day. Yes, he sir. was unbelievable. He was coming to Philadelphia and I got to know him. He's a Canadian guy. I got to know him. I did a sports cast on Channel 3 with the San Diego chicken. Uh, <laughs> he dressed up. It was, but it's, it's, that's the things that people remember. See, the thing that I think that is missing from newscasts in today's world is what do you remember? Well, the video everybody's seen, a lot of times it comes off of Twitter and everybody's pretty much got the same stories. And the word exclusive is used so much that it's not people, it's just, it's like not even a big deal. Well, we got this exclusive. Nobody remembers. You can't tell me what stories you saw on the station. And it's, it's sad because there's nothing that you remember necessarily from that newscast. And I've always believed you got to have something that people remember, whether it's an opinion, uh, you know, a story. You know, we remember stories, but we see them all over the place. But you're not going to see me talking during the day on social media uh, until I get and do a sportscast on TV. So there's something that they've seen or heard for the first time. But there's something that you remember. You got to I forget who it was that told me it was a consultant one time. Channel three had a lot of people work with me and it was they enjoyed it because it was easy because I just kind of was myself. Try to do something in that sports cast that people will remember. It's not just highlights. You just don't run a game that uh, and run the highlight that won something if it was a great highlight. But you still got to tell a story. And. I always tried to do that in a sportscast or what can I do in the sportscast uh, that people are going to remember? Uh, and, and that's important. I, I know when I listen, some of the sound bites now for managers and players are just so cookie cutter and cliche ish. And I know I would sit there at channel 29 and we'd have the post game of the coach come in and we'd have it slated for the sportscast. And I, I listened to it and I said, there's nothing there. I'm killing that. I'll just say something. I, I'm not going to run something which is going to bore people for 20 seconds. So, no, done. 
We're not, we're not running a soundbite. You know, you just got to look at it and you hope that they say something. I mean, Rob Thompson after, and he's a good guy and I'm not singling him out because it happens with all of them. It's just, they say the same things Sunday after the Phillies get swept by the Cubs, they lose their third straight game. They lose four, three, two of the runs uh, that they scored were earned. One was unearned. So, and after the game, he says, we battled, you know, I don't really care. You just lost three in a row to a team that came into Philadelphia 22 games under 500. It's embarrassing. And then somebody asked him about after the game, one of the reporters asked him about, you know, this guy's not hitting. We have professional hitters. Really? I, they're getting paid millions of dollars. Yeah, they're professional. What does that mean? What does that mean? I, it, it's just, see, if I, I would have run that soundbite, and then I would have commented on both of them and say, oh, you battled. You still lost. And then when he says we're professional hitters, yeah, this guy's making 17 million a year and this guy's making 20 million a year. Yeah, I guess they are professionals. What does that mean? So uh, I, it just, it's well, kind of. I mean, there's legendary stories. Talk about to use a word again about you, but I remember Charlie Manuel wanted to fight you one time. You were. You're asking him a question and he just, he was like ready to take you outside. I mean, in situations like that, you're asking a tough question. You know, do you get under their skin? Is it they you're getting them at a bad time? What are those situations like? Well, I'll deal with the Charlie Manuel situation. And there was one recently last season with Glenn Rivers, because there's only one doc in Philadelphia and that's Julius. <laughs> so, um, but Charlie Manuel, it's, and actually they made the playoffs that year. They lost to Colorado, but they made the playoffs. So uh, after the game, and I remember, and I, in my mind, I'm referencing it. I didn't reference it to him, I don't think. In the post-game news conference, I didn't think he was tough enough with players. And I never thought he was tough enough with players. He was too, too easy going with players. And I remember Lou Pinella going crazy on his players when he managed the Cubs. So I said to Charlie, I said, you know, the team's got off to a terrible start. I said, don't you think you have to be a little tougher with these guys? And then he says to me, you don't think I'm tough enough? Well, why don't you step into my office? I'll show you that I'm tough enough. So <laughs> sure enough, he walks to his office after it's all over in a different path than the media walks. And I walk and he's waiting for me outside the office. And he says, you coming in? I says, yeah, I'm coming in. I plan to come in. So the PR guy was standing there and he, he wasn't going to come in. I said, you can come in. You can invite anybody you want. Everybody can come in. So we start talking. We start screaming at each other. And it was kind of interesting that what really set him off. And, and, and we talked for a couple of minutes. And, and he says, you know, you've been killing me for three years. He'd only been there a little over two years. And then what I said, and I, I'm thinking like this, I said, you've been here for three years? And he went crazy. Uh, and he came flying down the desk. And I'll never forget Milt Thompson, who was a coach with the Phillies at that time, grabbed him. He wasn't going to do anything to me. He grabbed him. Now, somebody from Channel 10 recorded that outside the door of his office, which at the vet was right outside, or at the, uh, I guess it was Citizens Bank. But yeah, Citizens Bank Park was right outside. So they had the audio uh, of, of us yelling at each other in his office. But then I'm standing in the locker room, and he comes walking through while I'm waiting for a losing pitcher to talk to him. And uh, he looks at me, he says, I should drop you right here. 
And I says, why don't you grow up? He says, I've been grown up. Uh, and <laughs> that's the part that I think somebody has as tape of somewhere. And now I see Charlie and we laugh about it. You know, we laugh about it because I'm there. If you want to kick my ass, okay, all right, kick my ass. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. Talk to me. I've had players come after me. Jason Worth's come after me. Uh, and then we, we've now become good friends because I sat down and talked to him after the season was over. I made a comment, and it was based off of that. I was on ESPN the next day. And Chris McKendry actually wanted to interview me, and she was an anchor on ESPN, uh, who I told you earlier was an intern for me. And um, uh, she asked me, she says, anybody in the locker room say anything to you? I said, there weren't many people in the locker room. There was one guy there staring me down. It was Jason Worth's first year with the Phillies, staring me down. I says, Jason Worth was staring me down, and he's nothing but a marginal major league ball player. So he obviously saw it or, or heard about it. He waited the whole year. They won the division. And afterwards, they're pouring champagne on each other. He poured it on me, not out of happiness, but out of anger. I'm wearing a suit like I'm always doing. And he poured it on me and he says, marginal major league ball player. Is that what I am? A marginal? Well, he was his first year making 700 and some thousand dollars. To me, that's marginal. So uh, I said, you waited all year to say that. I said, we got to talk. So after the playoffs were over, we sat down and we talked for about 45 minutes. I said, if you ever have a problem, you can come up to me. I'm here. And then we became friends after that. Other it's happened with other players. Daryl Dawkins wanted to kick my ass. Daryl Dawkins, who played center for the Sixers. Daryl had two rebounds in 30 minutes, and I ripped him on the radio. And he said, my girlfriend told me you were ripping me. I said, Daryl, look at it this way. You played 30 minutes. You're what, 6'10", 6'11", and you had two rebounds? That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. What do you expect me to say? He says, you know what? You're right. And we became friends after that. May he, may he rest in peace. I think he passed away of a heart attack. And then last year, Glenn Rivers. There's questions I asked that people want to ask, too, at news conferences. It's like I, I asked Rivers after the, they, got, they got lost again in the second round of the playoffs. You know, how worried? Never ask a question that requires a yes or no answer. Because you'll a lot of times get yes or no. Uh, how worried, not are you worried about your job security? How worried are you about your job security? He says, you don't think I've done a good job? I think I've done a terrific job. Uh, I says, yeah, but it's a result. And then I jumped in. I said, it's a results-based business. What are the results? He says, if you don't think I've done a good job, then you write it. You say whatever you want. Uh, and, you know, and it's just, it, it was just, it was back and forth. But those are questions that need to be asked. And I'm sure there was more said in the back and forth. And there's been times during the year, which he knows when he sees me there, I'm going to ask a question. So, but I, I really wait. I try to ask a question that's of interest to the public. Uh, and that's all I do. I'm just. It's good I, the reaction that fans want to hear. I mean, I'd rather hear Glenn Doc Rivers get angry and talk about something than just have a boring vanilla quote. You're right. As a fan, it makes sense. You know, you mentioned you're talking about your clothes. Um, I, I was mentioning to a couple people that I know that, you know, we're going to do this interview. And one of them, a gentleman by the name of Howard Walker, sent me this. <laughs> he still has these at his home. And what they are is two bobbleheads 
of you wearing uh, minks. <laughs> and uh, I remember those days. And like, not many people have bobbleheads of their own image, but you were wearing uh, minks uh, at the field. Uh, you would go down to the game and wear different ones. Here's the hell that started. First of all, let me tell you, I raised, they sold out two years in a row, made $70,000 for charity. That's pretty good. Uh, and they are real mink. And the one there in the darker mink, which is on the screen, is on my left, is a real diamond in the pendant around the neck there. Uh, so I got a real diamond, real mink. But that all started, I went to a charity event that the Eagles were uh, modeling mink coats for a, a, a mink company. They were based, they had a few locations, but the main office was in Camden, was in New Jersey. And it was Zinman Furs. And the people called me up on the radio and they said, Howard, why weren't you wearing a mink coat? I said, nah, I'm a short white guy. Well, I'm going to wear a, a you know, mink coat. Yeah, it doesn't work. So I got up enough courage and it was cold. The first time I did it, it was a Dallas game of all things. And I got up the courage to wear the mink coat. And it was absolutely a full length mink coat. And then I it became, it became like a thing. People still ask me about it. I was on billboards with one of the Eagles players, Javon Kurse. Uh, it was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. And that's how the bobbleheads evolved. Uh, you know, like, why don't you do a bobblehead? I'd like to do more, but it's a lot of work. Now, it, it was really, uh, <laughs> there's so many different things that have happened because of things that have happened. And then I took it to the next step. That's what happened. Well, and one of the things I'm going to show a picture here of you with uh, Eagles owner Jeffrey Laurie. Um, is that when they won the, you look very, very excited. Was that the night of the Super Bowl win? Yes. Um, um, as the sideline reporter, think about a lifelong Philadelphian on the sidelines for a championship. And I did see a championship my first game ever as a kid. I, I don't know, seven, seven years old or whatever. The Eagles won a championship in 1960, but it wasn't a Super Bowl. So uh, I'm on the sidelines, and it was everything. The, the game was so unbelievable. Roger Goodell told me at the time after that game, when I saw him the next year at the league meetings, he said, you know, that might have been the most exciting Super Bowl game that we've ever had. And it was. And I get Lori, you know, I'm doing post-game interviews on the field for the broadcast with Merle and Mike. And I get Lori, and I grab him before he goes up on the podium. And, yeah, I, I mean, it was just – you know, it was so many moments, but that was a moment. You know, it's just everybody was excited. And obviously, I got caught up in the excitement. People ripped me for being too nice to the Eagles. They ought to hear what sometimes the Eagles say when I criticize some things that they've done. Uh, they don't want to hear that. But I get it. I get it from all places. But they won a Super Bowl. They're the last team that won a championship in Philadelphia. I think they're the next team that has the best chance to win a championship here in Philadelphia, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. And I don't know that it's going to happen next year, but based on what the other teams are doing, I think they're in position to be the next team to win a championship. But, but yeah, there, there's so many, I have so many pictures with so many guys and with players. Uh, uh, my son, who's now the program director up at uh, one of our stations, uh, WFAN in New York, uh, who's the program director. I have a picture with me, him and Wayne Gretzky, when he couldn't have been more than six years old, he didn't have the first clue who Wayne Gretzky was. Not the first clue, but I'm doing an interview with Wayne Gretzky in Atlantic City during the break, <clears throat> and I take a picture with him. Uh, it's just like, 
He had no idea who Wayne Gretzky was. I had pictures with him in Carlton, which he started to get to know who those guys were. You know, and Carlton, I always got along with Steve Carlton. Uh, it, it's just, uh, so I try to do things in that regard with my kids because I work so much. But, yeah, you know, they all had, they all had their moments, I think, with different players at different times. So it's really kind of cool. I for Michael Jordan at a tournament here in Philadelphia. I caddied for Charles Barkley. I caddied on the PGA Tour. That's on my resume. There was an event at Waynesboro Country Club out in Newtown Square. And uh, I caddied for a golfer by the name of Billy Mayfair, who I was friends with. They played, they alternated between here and Pittsburgh for that tournament. And that one year I caddied on the PGA Tour. So I'm a PGA Tour caddy too. So throw that in. <laughs> one last question, and it's a two-parter. Who is the favorite athlete you've ever dealt with, and who is your least favorite? You can take it whatever order you want. Well, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of good guys. Charles Barkley's the favorite because Charles would he would be like me when I first met him when he was a rookie. He heard me criticize Jerry Tarkanian, who was then the coach at UNLV, and he says, "What are you criticizing Tark for?" I said, "Number one, Peter." And, you know, all these other things that, that I don't like about it. He says, you guys, me? I says, let me tell you something. If you only play one end of the floor and you're just playing offense and not playing defense, I'm going to criticize you too. Okay, that's fair. Uh, so we became friends almost immediately. Now we're really good friends. We played golf together. We played golf with Gary Player about a year ago. Uh, it was the time of his life, and it was a moment for me too. Gary was great. Was great. Uh, we've had different moments at different golf courses. He hit himself with a golf ball in the head in Phoenix. Uh, we played boulders. He hit a rock next to the tee. It hit the rock and hit him in the head. It shows it. Oh, 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 am I bleeding? I just get up and hit again. The ball's back there. Uh, it's, so, you know, it, there's so many moments that we've, we've had and I caddied for him in Tahoe. Uh, it, it, there, so many stories, but he would, he would have to be the best. He would have to be the best because he's that kind of guy. And we've been out so many times and we've done so many things so many times. Julius Irving is right. Julius I talk to often. Julius is uh, more of a proper guy. Charles will say whatever the hell he thinks. Uh, but Charles is great. The worst, I, I got to say, was, was not a Philadelphia player. Barry Bonds is the most miserable human being uh, and that – I think that I've ever met uh, miserable, miserable. Uh, and he, he always comes to mind. A local guy, there's probably a few uh, that we didn't get along when they were players. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll give you a, whether it's a quick story or not, because I wasn't afraid to say anything. The Eagles back, Randall Cunningham was on the team. I don't remember what year. The Eagles are 0-5 to start the season. We're waiting in the locker room for Randall Cunningham. And... Um, and a guy named Bill Johnson, who was a defensive lineman, comes walking by and he looks at me. Good guy. He says, what do you think of this team? You really want to know? Yeah. You suck. You suck. I grew up with a team in the early 70s. A guy named Jerry Williams was a coach. And they were awful. You're worse than those guys. And then I started going off. I went off for about five to ten minutes. And then I looked at a wide receiver they got from the San Diego Chargers. A guy named Jeff Graham. Two lockers away. He was standing there. And he says, you see that guy over there? I have as many catches as him. Zero. Okay? 
you, this team sucks. He says, well, what would you do? I'll tell you what I do. I pick out about five guys and I'd say, all right, you guys come with me. We're going to leave the locker room. And then I throw a bomb in the locker room and just blow up this team. Now I can't say that. And you know, obviously I'm kidding, but it was at the time, nobody took offense to it. And he said, Oh, okay. <laughs> he says, am I one of the guys that's coming out with you? I says, I don't know yet. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wasn't afraid to say anything about anybody, but th there were some really, really, and when you ask favorites, there's some really good guys from every team, from every team. So, uh, just because I mentioned Barkley, it's, it's pretty easy to say Barkley. That's great. Well, Howard, I want to thank you for taking the time for joining me on the program. And honestly, I think if you write that book, it would be amazing. There's a lot of people who want to read it. So something well, I know I, it's probably don't need more work, but it could be good. I'm taking down notes every day when I think of something because there's so many different things. But there's stories that I can tell and there's stories that I can't tell. So. The stories you can't tell are probably incredible, I'm sure, too. Uh, uh, the, the stories that I can tell are amazing, absolutely amazing. Howard, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate joining the program and uh, spending the time, too. And uh, I like the background. Doing it outside was a great idea. Yeah, and uh, thank you. And it's anytime. It's always a pleasure. Take care, uh, Howard. Always thanks. a pleasure. The Dr. Brian McDonough Show.